friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. We're ready to go to God's Word right now, so uh, let's take a look at James chapter 2, verses 18 to 20 at this time. Let me ask you to please rise from your seats as we study James chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. I'd like everyone please to read together aloud at the same time, at the count of three. One, two, three. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we just give you thanks and praise. For this wonderful Sunday morning, O oh God, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to just glorify and honor your holy name. Indeed, Lord, Christ is enough for us. You are all we need. You are our sufficiency. You are our adequacy. You are our very life, our joy, our peace, and our strength. Lord, we cannot live this life in the way you want it, unless we abide in you. And so my prayer, Lord God, this morning is that we all would abide in your presence and that you might feed us with your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you might embrace us with your love and that your grace will abound in this place and upon our hearts. Lord, we trust that you will achieve all of your good purposes this morning as we will be very careful to give you back all the glory, all the praises, and all the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Faith That Really Saves. Now, whenever the subject matter of true religion uh, comes up, people are willing to lend their voices vigorously and what they would do is they would try to prove that their own religion, their own beliefs is the right one. Now, even among professing Christians, there are arguments and debates that take place as to which is the one that properly represents the Bible or the one that properly represents Christianity. Now, this environment of contention was actually present during the time of James. And so there was a discussion which was going back and forth as to what was the real faith. And so it seemed like there were a lot of people who had not yet made up their minds, and so there was some kind of a confusion. And James wanted to help people so that they get to understand what is genuine saving faith or what is real faith. Now, this subject matter is really important in the light of what is going to happen in eternity. I mean, all of us will live on into eternity. The only question is, where will we spend eternity? Will we spend it in heaven or will we spend it in hell? And so this question about the real faith is really significant and relevant. And knowing that we are mortal beings and our mortality stares us every single day. I mean, every, every day, you know, something can happen. Any moment, God can actually take us home. I'm actually saddened by the departure of one of our brothers. His name is Jim Chapman. He used to attend our church here some years back together with his Filipino wife. They moved back to the United States. 
And so we were watching their Facebook posts, and they were doing a tour all over the United States. They were traveling by car, and they were actually documenting the places that they would go to, and sometimes they would even document the times when they would be driving across the roads in America. And so we thought this was really a wonderful moment. I mean, they were really having a blast. They were enjoying themselves. And then all of a sudden, I saw this, this post of Sister Edith, and it seemed like her face was bruised. She had some bruises, and she had a cut in her forehead. And then on her legs, there were some bruises as well. So I was wondering what happened. And so as I was crawling and looking and trying to find out what had happened, I just discovered that Jim met a car accident. She was there with him. Jim did not survive. Edith, thankfully, was able to survive. My niece, Laika, sent us um, a link from a local daily in Oregon where the accident happened. And what happened was in a T intersection, what happened was they were driving the Corolla and there was this SUV which hit the driver's side where Jim was and he died on the spot. And, you know, up until this time, I'm still reeling from that because they were so alive and enjoying life and then all of a sudden, a strange twist takes place. God takes Jim home. But then again, as I reflect on that, I realize that Jim is in a far better place than we are. Because the Bible says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the question is, is it really significant? Is it really relevant that we talk about real faith? My argument is yes. It is very crucial for us to be able to discuss these things because we'll never know when God takes us home. Sometimes you can be doing something like that, doing a tour of a particular place, and then an accident takes place. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we prepared? If God takes us home, do we know exactly where you and I are going? And that question begs to be answered. And so I look at this particular passage, and there is so much that we can get out of it so that we might have a true and genuine assurance of salvation. Now, there are three things that James brings to the fore, and I'd like to be able to share them to you at this time. So, the first thing you will discover is there is a dialogue on salvation. As I mentioned at the beginning, this was a discussion that was going back and forth. People were dis discussing what's the real faith or what is the faith that saves. And each one had an opinion. And actually, what James does is he records for us some of the discussion, some of the dialogue that was taking place back and forth. And so let's take a look at two dialogues that we see here. Dialogue number one would be on two major views on salvation. And the first one would be a discussion, or rather a dialogue coming from those who hold on to a faith alone way of salvation. Now, this is the correct view. Salvation is by faith alone. We cannot be saved by good works. Now, I will move and explain that further on as we move in the sermon. But here's the second discussion that we find. There were those who held on to a works-based salvation. Now, as I will explain later, this is something that needs to be scrapped because there is no way you and I can be saved by good works. And why is that so? Because the standards of God are so high. What He requires is perfect and complete obedience, not just one day, but for a whole lifetime. Think about that. How many of us 
can perfectly obey God for an entire lifetime. Now, some might argue that they can actually be good one day, but the question is, can you do that on a consistent basis your whole lifetime? And the answer, obviously, is we can't do that. That is why, humanly speaking, if you and I would like to be saved by good works, that is simply not possible. We can't do it, all right? So good works needs to be taken out of the picture. That will not save us. Now, we will go to the second dialogue, which talks about two views of faith alone saves. Now, we said that the right doctrine is faith alone is able to save us. However, let me point out, there are some who take this to an extreme, and they sort of stretch the meaning of this, and so it, you know, it becomes in excess of what the Bible actually teaches. And, and so here's what we discover in dialogue number two, the antinomian view, which is incorrect. Because basically what the antinomian view says is, well, since God has saved me and my name is written in the book of life, I can live my life the way I want to. I can take drugs, I can party, I can have an affair, and I'll still be saved. That's the antinomian view, otherwise known as the hyper-grace view. Now, we don't subscribe to that. Definitely, James does not subscribe to that. And so, later on, we will talk about the correct biblical view of faith alone. Now, the second part, here's what we will be talking about. We will be talking about those who possess orthodox faith. Interestingly, here's what you and I will see here. First, you will see professing Christians who believe in monotheism. That is, there is only one God. Now, that is something that you and I need to hold on to. There are not many gods. There are not three gods. There's only one God. There are three persons in that one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But we're not talking about three gods. We're talking about just one God. Now, that's a mystery. We'll talk about that later on. However, here's the interesting part. Even demons hold on to that view. They too believe there's really just one God. They know above all else that there are not several gods, but there is just one God. And the question, of course, that this uh, propounds is, well, uh, how do we take this? How do we respond to this? Obviously, James is trying to bring out something very important. We will discuss that in a bit. The third and final point would be this the logical conclusion. And in the logical conclusion, here we will be talking about the foolishness of believing that salvation by faith alone without the evidence of good works will save. All right? Now, understand what James is saying. James is not saying faith plus works saves. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is faith alone saves. Now, what's the evidence that faith alone saves? The evidence of that is good works. And that's why good works are the evidence that we are actually saved. We go to the final point. Here we find the uselessness of salvation by faith alone without the evidence of good works. If you and I are saved, then we have a changed heart. And if we have a changed heart, well, we will have changed lives. So basically, that is what it's going to talk about. But let's go on and let's move to the first point. Let's talk about the dialogues, the discussion that was going back and forth between members of the church. And so as I mentioned to you, in dialogue number one, you have two major views. Notice the discussion. It says, but someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. So we have here two opposing views. One says, well, I have faith. The other one says, well, my works will save me. 
So the question is, which one is really the thing that would save us? Now, I already mentioned to you that those who hold on to a faith alone, say faith alone, say it out loud, faith alone, now, those who hold on to a faith alone way of salvation understand the Bible correctly. This is the correct biblical view. We are saved by faith alone. In what? In the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, what do we need to believe uh, in relation to Christ? We need to believe He is God. We need to believe also that He came in the form of man. He was real man. What else do we need to believe about Christ? We need to believe that He is the Messiah, that He is the Christ, that He is the Savior, that He is the Lord and the King over all the universe. So that's what we need to believe in so far as Christ is concerned, the person of Christ is concerned. What about His work? We need to believe that Christ died on the cross paying the penalty of our sins. He died to pay for our sins. Now, we need to understand that that is a very important doctrine, the justice of God. The justice of God needs to be served. And you and I know that even our own death, our own physical death will not save us. Why is that so? Because we are dirty offerings. We are offerings that have spot and stain and sin. So even if we got nailed to the cross, it would not save us. Only Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that is acceptable to the Father because He was without sin, without stain. Only He is spotless. So only He can fulfill the requirement of God for a spotless, sinless sacrifice. And so what did He do at the cross? He paid for our sins, past, present, and future. That's what we call as the doctrine of atonement. Now, in the other discussion, we find that there were those who, hold, who held on rather to a works-based salvation. As I mentioned to you, this, is, this should be immediately scrapped because this is totally unscriptural. I'm going to show you four passages, and we'll put them on the screen for you. For some of you, this will be basic, but something that you and I need to review. So let's take a look at Ephesians, first of all. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Here we go. It says, for by grace. Now, what does grace mean? Grace means unmerited favor. It means undeserved favor. We don't deserve it, and yet God gives it to us. Now, what is being given here? What is being given here is salvation. We don't deserve to be saved but He gives it to us as a gift. Now, notice here the tense. And th this is where our English classes actually help us understand the Bible. It says, for by grace you have been what? Now, is that past tense, present tense, or future tense? That's past tense. Now, here's another question I have for you. Was Paul writing to people who were dead? Or was he writing to people who were alive? Obviously, he was writing to people who were alive. You will not write to somebody who's already dead. Now, the interesting part here is that it says, you have been saved, past tense. What does that tell you? That you and I, listen well, you and I can actually be sure of being saved here and now. A lot of people ask this question, uh, how, how do you know that you're saved? Or do you know that you are saved? And the question, for a lot, um, the question is answered by a lot of people this way. They would say, well, I'm hoping that I could be saved. I'm hoping that I could go to heaven. But you see, if you take a look at this passage, this is not talking about a maybe. This is not talking about I hope I will go to heaven. 
Paul declares to the people he was writing to that they were saved, past tense. It was something that was already completed, something that was already done, something that they were assured of. So we can actually be assured of salvation while we still live. Now, how does that take place? Through faith. And I talked about faith a while ago, faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now watch that there is a conjunction here, the word end. Now that's a connecting word. Now what's the significance of the word end here? It means that it is modifying something. The question is, what is end modifying? Well, the more logical conclusion is that it is modifying faith. All right? So, faith is not of yourselves. What does that tell you? When you and I had faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, it was not because we manufactured that faith. It was not because we willed that faith. No, it has nothing to do with us. What this verse is actually saying is that the faith that we had to believe in Christ actually did not come from us. We did not manufacture it. We did not will it. But rather, this faith was actually a gift of God. I will show you later on in a few verses how this happened. But it is very important that we realize that when we believed in Christ, we cannot tap ourselves on our shoulders and say, I'm such a good guy, I had great faith. No, if you believed in Christ, it was because God gave you the gift of faith. So, very important that we understand that. Now, notice what it also says here. Not as a result, this salvation that is given to us by God is not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So we don't get saved by our own good works. We're saved by faith alone. Say faith alone. Say faith alone saves. Say good works will not save me. All right. Now we move to another text right now. Let's take a look at the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 28. Now watch what Romans chapter 3, verse 28 says. For we maintain that a man is justified by what? What does it say? By faith. And what does it say? Apart from the works of the law. Meaning to say, the works of the law have nothing to do with our salvation. Good works have nothing to do with our names written in the book of life. It's by faith alone. Now, it becomes even clearer as we take a look at the book of Galatians. Let's take a look at the book of Galatians right now. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 states this. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not, say not, is not justified by the works of the law. So if you're trying to save yourself by good works, by your own efforts, by your own perspiration, by your own blood, sweat, and tears, know this, you will not be saved. I'm not saying that. The Bible is saying that. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through what? Through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified. What's justified? It's just as if you have not sinned. Although you are a sinner because Jesus took your place as a substitute, all right, God now declares you clean. God now declares you righteous, not because you're righteous, but God imputes it upon you. Why? Because of the work of Christ. So it says here, continuing, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and once again, and not, not 
by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So it is really going to be a tragic and terrible mistake on your part if you're going to try to save yourself. Because the Bible says if you do that that way, you're not going to get saved. Because no flesh, no human being is going to get saved by good works. So, it's just by faith alone. We go to a last text right now, Titus. And Titus uh, explains this more in terms of the process that takes place. Now, notice, once again, He saved us. Is that past, present, or future tense? Come on, English students. That's past. He saved us. It's done. It's finished. Now, again, uh, Paul was writing to people who were alive at that time, and yet he was saying, you're saved already. You're saved. You're going to go to heaven. I'm sure of that. That's what he's actually saying here. Now, how did he save us? Watch this. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. The book of Isaiah says that our righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. Nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. Actually, the more literal translation is the, the filthy rags there are actually menstrual cloths. Uh, in, now, nowadays, you'd call that sanitary napkins that women would use during their menstruation. So can you imagine that? That's how God looks at our righteous deeds. Sometimes we congratulate ourselves and say how generous we are, how loving we are, how kind we are, what a good family we have. And yet, you know what? According to God's standards, when God looks at it through His own lens, it's really nothing but filthy rags. It's dirty. And that is something that we need to submit to. We cannot raise our fists against God and, and contradict what He is saying and say, Lord, I'm good. No, God is saying you're bad. And if God says you're bad, then you're bad. Amen? No argument with that. God is God. If He says that our righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags, you don't argue with God. That's what God is saying. And so anyway, moving forward, here's how we get saved. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His what? I want to hear it aloud. According to His what? Mercy. Say it out louder. According to His what? Mercy. That's what we need. If you cry out to God for justice, you'll go to hell. You cry out to God for mercy, you'll go to heaven. That's how it is. That's how the thief in the cross ended up in paradise instead of hell because he asked for mercy. And that is actually what God is just asking each and every one of us that we might cry out to Him and say, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Lord, forgive my sins. Forgive all that I have done. Forgive me for what I have done that has offended you. That's all that God is asking. And God is a forgiving God. Amen? He will forgive us of all our sins. So why should we deny ourselves of salvation that He freely offers to us by simply asking for mercy? Now, a while ago, we said that the faith for us to believe in Christ did not come as a result of our own selves. So the question is, well, how did you and I get that faith? Here's the answer. The reason why we had faith in the person and work of Christ is this. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the what? Say it out loud, please. By the? Say it out loud. By the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. How did I have faith in Christ? How did I have faith to believe that His death on the cross pays for all my sins? Friends, that did not come from you. That came from the work of the Holy Spirit. 
It was the Holy Spirit that gave you that faith to believe in Christ. And that is why we should be thankful to God because salvation is actually all the work of God. It's all by God. It's all by faith and all by grace. And all we need to do is receive it from Him. Amen? All we need to do is open our arms and say, Lord, I'm receiving Your salvation. I'm receiving Your mercy. And God just graciously pours out salvation to us. Praise God for that. And to God be all the glory. And this needs to be taught. Because many times we fail to understand what salvation is all about. And I think that is a very important discussion. But let's move forward and let's take a look at dialogue number two, wherein you have two views of faith alone saves. Now, notice, in this passage, it says, show me your faith without the works. And then the other discussion is, and I will show you my faith by my works. As I mentioned to you, there are some people who actually stretch the meaning of the Bible. And so we come across the antinomian view, which is an incorrect view of faith alone saves because what it believes is you can have faith without works. You can have faith without the evidence of good works. You can have faith without the evidence of a changed life. Now, that is not true at all. Now, the question perhaps that you are asking, well, where do people actually get this idea, this antinomian view, this, this hyper-grace view? Well, they probably lift it from Romans chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. Take a look at Romans 5, 20 to 21, please. It says here, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, what does that mean? God gave laws so that we could be sinners? No, that's not what it means. What the law did is to make us aware that we are sinners. How do you know you're a thief? Well, you know that you are a thief because there's a commandment that says, thou shall not steal. If there was no commandment, thou shall not steal, you would not know that you were a thief. Now, how do you know that you're covetous? You know that you're covetous because the Bible says, thou shall not covet thy neighbor's goods. That's how you know you're covetous. So that's what the law did. That's the function of the law. The function of the law is to show to us who we are. It's like a mirror. All right? The commandments of God are like a mirror. When you take a look at the mirror, you actually see a reflection of yourself. I recall a man who had an accident. He had a motorcycle accident. This was actually a pastor. And he did not know the extent of the damage. He was, he was beaten, beaten up black and blue because of that accident. And he insisted that he was going to preach on Sunday. But the members of his church were looking at his face. It was really, I mean, it was really bad. He had bruises. He had welts. He had bumps. He didn't really look good. But he said, I'm going to preach on Sunday. I'm fine. I don't have any broken bones. I'm going to preach on Sunday. Pastor, please don't preach this coming Sunday. You don't look good. And so the pastor said, no, I will still preach. I have to preach. And so finally, somebody brings a mirror. Pastor, look at your face. And when the pastor saw his face, he said, you're right. I should not preach this Sunday. People might think that there was a monster preaching. <laughs> you see, sometimes that's how it is. That's what the Word of God does. That's what commandments do. The commandments actually show you who you are. We would not know that we are sinners except by the commandments of God. So that is actually what this is saying. So the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And what is, what is this saying? What this is saying is this, there is no sin that is bigger than grace. 
Let me say it again. There is no sin that is bigger than grace. Some of you might say, you know, Pastor Mel, I used to work as an assassin. I don't think God can forgive me. I've killed a lot of people. I, I have dreams of, of skeletons. I, I have dreams of people I have killed. God cannot possibly save me. God cannot possibly forgive me. Well, look at what this verse is saying. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there is no sin that is actually bigger than the grace of God. You may have committed some really bad and some really wicked things in your life, but know this, the grace of God is bigger than any sin that you have committed. And that's so wonderful. Amen. Give the Lord a big hand. It says, so that a sin reign in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the reasoning of some people is, this is what happens with some people. They sort of stretch the meaning. And now they're saying, well, if that's the case, if grace abounds when, when sin increases, then I can live my life the way I want to. I can take drugs. I can take alcohol. I can have an affair. I can live a very wild life. And you know what? At the end of it, I'll still go to heaven. And God is saying, no, you don't do that. Because God saved us that we might be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. He saved us by giving us a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that is now sensitive and obedient to Him. That is what happens to us when we become a child of God. When a person is, is, is born again, here's what happens you receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells inside of you. I recall the story of a friend of mine. Um, he, was, he came from a very wealthy family. Actually, his family was in the textile business. His father was a textile magnate. And one time he shared his story to us, and he said that my father's wallet was so thick that I would get some peso bills there, he would not even notice that I would get money from him because his wallet was so thick. But I became a Christian, he said. And it came at a time when, there came a time rather, when he saw a few coins in his father's table or refrigerator. I can't recall exactly the story now. But he says, I saw a few coins, and since I did not have any money, I was actually tempted to just get those coins. After all, they were just coins. And he said, as he was about to get the coins, he started to break out in cold sweat. He began to perspire, till finally he said, I'm not going to do this again even if it is just a few coins. Now, what happened there? What happened there is an experience of a changed heart. What happened there was of Him being convicted by the Holy Spirit. That is why if you are truly a child of God, you cannot do the things that you used to do. Or if you would do them, you would be greatly convicted. You would repent and confess them before the Lord. So it cannot be that there can be no changes in your life. That is why, notice, Romans 5, 20 to 21 is actually followed by Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And this is something that we have to read. We have to read everything. Notice what Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 states. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be with an exclamation mark. Now, Paul is emphatic about this, and he says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? This is a rhetorical question once again. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We cannot do that. Out of gratefulness for the redemption that we have received, 
because of the new heart that we have, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, how can we continue in a sinful lifestyle? We can't do that because we're changed. We've been changed by God. So what is the correct biblical view of faith alone? Again, let's go back to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but we'll take a look at verse 10 as well. So again, let's flash it on the screen. Here's what it says. It says, again, this is what we studied a while ago. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how we get saved. So that not of yourselves, that faith doesn't come from us. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works. We don't get saved by good works so that no one may boast. The glory belongs to God alone. But look at verse 10. All right? Don't read just verses 8 and 9 and don't, not reading verse 10. You have to follow through and read verse 10 as well. So what does verse 10 say? It says, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Say it out loud. For what? For good works. Remember what I said? We're not saved by good works, but God saved us for good works. Meaning to say that, notice what it says here, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So if you're a believer in Christ, your life has changed. I recall the story of Brother Jingle years ago, he shared this story to me that there was somebody who pointed a gun on him. It was a scary moment, and you would think that after this was done, he'd probably get back at that person who uh, pointed a gun at him. At that point in time, when somebody pointed a gun on him, he was already a believer in Christ. Now, obviously, he was shocked with what was done. And sometimes the natural response is to get back at those who insult us and humiliate us like that. But you know what happened? One time he saw this, this guy who pointed a gun at him during a funeral service. Guess what he does? He goes to this person and reaches out with a firm handshake and sits together with him while the funeral service was going on. Now, what just happened there? What just happened there is a testimony of grace. Amen? When grace com comes upon you, there is a radical change that takes place in your life. Now, here's the question I need you to answer. Do you see that in your life? Have you seen change in your life? When you take a look at your responses, when you take a look at the way you react, when you listen to yourself as you speak, how do you respond? How do you react? How do you talk? Do you see a change with the past that you used to have and with the present life that you have? Do you see a change? If you are truly a child of God, you need to be able to see those changes. Even in your thought patterns, the way you think, because sometimes we can actually put up a very happy and very spiritual and holy facade, but deep down inside, we could be angry. Deep down inside, we could be bitter. Deep down inside, we could, we could be cursing a lot of people. Deep down inside, we could be wishing ill happening to some people. Now, everything changes when you become a child of God. And this is the reason why uh, what James does is he wakes people up from their spiritual slumber. And he begins to speak to people and say, you know what? It's not enough that you have orthodox faith. And this brings us to our second section, the possessors of orthodox faith. Let me read what this verse says. It says, you believe that God is one. You do well. That's right. That's right. But the demons also believe and they shudder. Professing, here we find one, professing Christians who believe in monotheism. There is only one God. 
There are three persons in that one God, but we are only worshiping one God. Haven't you noticed in Matthew 28 that when we are to baptize, we are to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you this question. Is that grammatically correct? When the Bible says that we are to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is that grammatically correct? Grammatically, that's wrong. Because you're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it should read this way. It should be in the names, plural, in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The question is, why is it grammatically incorrect? Well, it is grammatically incorrect to us, but it is correct. It is doctrinally theologically correct because the Bible reveals to us that there is just one God. The book of Deuteronomy says there is only one God. But in that one God, there are three persons. They are called equal, but not, they're not the same. All right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When Jesus Christ was baptized, remember, by John the Baptist, there was a voice from heaven that said what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was God the Father. God the Son was being baptized. But it's still one God. My question is, what? I don't understand that. How, how can there be three persons and it, it's one God? Well, here's what the Bible says, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to man. That's why God is God. Amen? God cannot be completely understood by, by finite minds. Our, our minds are so limited, we cannot possibly understand everything there is about God because if we could understand everything there is about God, we would be God. But we're not God. And so we leave it as a mystery that we cannot solve at all. You know, St. Augustine was trying to solve this problem. He, he actually almost lost his mind. Did you know that? He almost lost his mind because he was thinking, how can this be? Three persons, one God. And he was walking along the beach line and he was racking his brains. He was saying, I can't understand this. I can't understand this. How could that be? Three persons, one God. Till finally he saw a boy who bore a hole, a hole in the beach, and he was getting a pail of water from the sea, and he was pouring water on that hole. But you know what happens, right? When you continue pouring water on that hole, what happens? The water just goes down. And God spoke to St. Augustine's heart and said, Son, this is what you're doing. You're pouring water on something, trying to fill it up, you can't do it. You will not be able to understand it. There are certain things that are mysteries to us, and we have to believe that. Now, if you believe that God is one, Bible says, James says, you do well. But should you already congratulate yourself when you believe that? Well, that's a good thing, but that's not enough. You know why? Because James says, the demons also believe and shudder. By the way, this tells us we should not be afraid of demons because demons are scared of God. I don't know if you had some scary experiences during All Saints Day or All Souls Day, and sometimes those scary moments we have, they're just in the mind. We're really just trying to scare ourselves. We shouldn't be scared of demons. Cast them out. That's what the Bible says, amen? We have the authority to cast out demons. But anyway, that's just a sidebar. The main point of James is this. Demons, there is no demon who is an atheist. Did you know that? 
There is no demon who is an atheist. All demons believe in God. And they know there is just one God. So what is their problem? Their problem is they have rebelled against God. They have, so to speak, I'm just using this as a figure of speech, they have jumped from the cliff and they can no longer unjump. That's the problem. They can no longer repent. They've made their decision. They've jumped. They cannot unjump. And so that is the problem they face. But notice, they believe in God. In fact, demons do better than human beings because there are human beings who don't believe in God, right? There are many people who are atheists. Uh, Sister Nora actually shared to me an article coming from uh, a science uh, magazine, I think. And in that article, the scientists, upon evaluating the theory of evolution, finally came up with the conclusion that it is not scientific at all. But having concluded that the theory of evolution is not scientific at all, they still were groping for answers. How did the world came, come to be? How was the world created? How, how is it that there are human beings? You know, there's just one answer. The Bible says the answer why there are human beings, why there is a universe, is because there was a God who created everything. Amen? Now think about this. Just the human anatomy is a wonder in itself. We have eyes to see. We can appreciate colors, different forms, different shapes. Where did that come from? We have ears to hear. We could hear sounds. Where did that come from? We have mouths that, that speak. We're able to communicate what's in our minds. We can speak what is in our minds to people, and there can be interaction. Where did that come from? We have tongues that have the sense of taste. We enjoy different flavors. Where did that come from? Think about the function of our body parts, both outside and inside. And you have got to make this conclusion, there has to be God. Amen? And that's why the Big Bang Theory is foolishness. It's really stupidity. It's really something that doesn't make sense. But here's the thing. The Bible says people are willfully ignorant. That's what the book of Ephesians says. If people are ignorant, it's because they want to be ignorant. That's the problem. So, when we think about this, what James is saying is there is really no difference with one who merely professes faith in God, in one God, and demons. Demons believe the same thing. So, clearly, professed faith without the evidence of good works will bring you to the same place. And where is that? The lake of fire. The demons will end up in the lake of fire, and if you simply profess that God is one and that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, but without the evidence of good works, where do you go? You go to hell. So what does that mean? Your faith was not really genuine. You did not really get saved. You just thought you got saved. And, and this is what happens with some people. The sinner's prayer is recited, and they think, well, I pray the sinner's prayer, I must be saved. Or when the evangelist called upon people to come to the front to receive Christ, they, they came rushing in, and they fell in line, and they thought, well, I received the Lord. Now, the important thing for us to realize is that, again, I have nothing against altar call. I have nothing against sinner's prayers. They can be used of God. But the question we need to be asking is, when you pray the sinner's prayer, did you have these two elements? Did you believe and did you repent? Did you believe and did you repent? Did you believe the gospel? Did you believe that Christ saves you from all your sins? Did you repent? Now, what does repentance mean? 
Repentance doesn't mean this. Some people think repentance is, well, I'm a smoker, I'm no longer going to smoke. Or, I'm a drunkard, I'm no longer going to drink. Some people think that's repentance. Well, that's part of it, but repentance that saves is this. Repentance doesn't really rely on your willpower, but repentance is like this, and I'll put it in words and in prayer. Repentance is coming before God and saying, Lord, you know I cannot change myself. I am weak. I am fragile. I am powerless. But Lord, I want to change. I want to change every aspect of my life. And so I come to you. I surrender my life to you. And Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, change me and make me into the kind of person you want me to be. Repentance, therefore, is an absolute willingness. Listen well. Say absolute willingness. Say, say it out loud. Absolute willingness. It is an absolute willingness for God to effect changes in your life. In other words, you're saying, Lord, I'm yours. Make me what you want me to be. That's repentance. Now, when you have those two things, then it's genuine faith. So the logical conclusion is this. Go to verse 20. It says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, the phrase here, foolish fellow, in the Greek literally means empty heads or numbskulls. You know, he doesn't mince words. James doesn't mince words. He's saying, you morons, don't you understand what the Bible is saying, that faith without works is useless? So here he is talking about the foolishness of believing that salvation by faith alone without the evidence of good works will save. There has to be an evidence. There has to be proof that you are really a child of God. And I think John succinctly explains, this to, explains it to us in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. Let's take a look at this. 1 John 3, 7 to 10. Here's how it goes. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Now, why was he saying that? Because John believed that there were some people who were actually deluded. There were some people who were deceived. It says here, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. If your lifestyle is a lifestyle of, of holiness, of spiritual growth, of spiritual maturity, of having the fruit of the Spirit, that only means that you are right with God. That only means you're saved. That means you're a child of God. That means you're a son and a daughter of God. That's what it means when that is how you live your life. Bible says just as He is righteous. Now verse 8 is really sobering. Verse 8 says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. All of us would like to claim we're, we're all children of God. That's not true. Not everyone is a child of God. Not even everyone who is here right now. And I say that in love. Not everyone is a child of God. How do we know that? Because the Bible says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the very beginning. So here is the question of lifestyle. How do you live your life? If you, is your life a lifestyle of sin? Have there been no changes in your life? Well, think about this. This is really sobering. The Bible says the one who practices sin is of the devil. I didn't say that. I would not even dare say that, maybe, to your face. But this is what the Bible says. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, what did the Son of God do when He appeared? The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So if the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you, the question is, is He destroying the works of the devil in your heart? 
So you need to ask yourself, what's in my heart? What do I see in my heart? Do I see humility? Do I see patience? Do I see kindness? Do I see love? Do I see faithfulness? Do I see gentleness? Do I see self-control? If I see all of those things, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm a child of God. But if in my heart I see that there is immorality, there is adultery, there is lust, there is pride, there is arrogance, there is anger, there is maliciousness, there is evil intent. Well, what do you think does that mean based on the Scripture? Not on what I'm saying, not on my opinion. Based on what the Bible says, it says you're a child of the evil one. Now, why do you think John and James does this? Do you, do you think that they want to condemn people so they feel the weight of the world upon them and, and they think, well, I have no hope, I'm a sinner, I'm a child of the devil, I'm going to go to hell. Do you think that was the purpose of James and John? No. What they are doing here, again, the beginning statement here in verse 7 is, make sure no one deceives you. Some of us have been had. Some of us have been fooled and deceived either by people or by the evil one himself, the devil. And the problem is, if you have a false assurance of salvation, you will wake up in eternity deeply frustrated that you are not a child of God. Now, would you like that happening? James and John, they do not want that happening to anyone. They wanted everyone to be saved because after all, in Timothy it says, God does not desire for anyone to perish, but He desires for all men to be saved. So what was the purpose of James and John to sober up people, to wake them up from their spiritual slumber so that they will turn to God and give their souls to Him? Verse 9 reads, No one who is born of God practices sin. It doesn't say no one who is born of God uh, sins, because we still do sin. But it says no one who is born of God practices sin. In other words, it's not your lifestyle. When you stumble and you fall, you get convicted. You ask for forgiveness. You confess it to the Lord. You rise back from where you have fallen. So if you are truly born of God, you will not practice sin. Because why? Because His seed abides in Him. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you. And, and what did the Holy Spirit do? He changed your affections. Why do you think you want to read the Bible? Where did that come from? To an ordinary person, the Bible is an ancient book. It's dull. It's boring. I recall sharing to a stewardess a few years ago, I shared to her about the beauty of the Bible, and she said, I don't want to read the Bible. I'd rather read Harold Robbins. The Bible is so boring. It's so dull. My regret was a few years later, she was riding a plane. She was serving as a stewardess, going to Baguio, and the plane crashed. Up until now, they're not using that airport because of that accident. She died. And sadly, I don't think she's in heaven. I don't think she's in heaven. You don't want that. You want to be where God is. So continuing on, it says, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin, or he cannot, this is in the present tense, he cannot practice sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of, of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Obvious ba? It's obvious. It says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. By the way, love is such an important element 
Jesus Christ said, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John actually amplifies this and he talks about hatred. And he says, if you hate your brother, you're not saved. If you're bitter against somebody, you're not saved. That's what John says. Read 1 John. It's a book that will wake you up. And so, the point of all of this is really just to show to us what is genuine and real saving faith because God wants us to arrive at that place. God wants us there. He wants us to be in the right place. And the problem is we could be here and we think that we're saved. And James is saying, no. You have to, you have to know what is the real faith that saves. And he is saying, this is it. You need to be here. You need to go here. This is where you need to be. Because this is where you're safe. This is where your name gets written in the book of life. This is where you know you're a child of God. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. This is how you know you are a partaker of divine nature. That's what God wants. That's what James wants. So, the conclusion is the uselessness of salvation by faith alone without the evidence of good works. Faith without works is useless. What is the faith that saves? It is the faith that has the evidence of good works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Good works is the evidence that our faith is genuine. Let me just close by saying this. James is not saying faith plus works saves. That's not what he's saying. What James is saying, faith, faith alone in the person and work of Christ saves. But to prove that, there's got to be works. That's why Notice how the dialogue, the conversation went, show me, show me. That's how it began, remember? Show me. So if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm saved, show me. Now, how do you show a person you're saved? By your changed life. If by virtue of a changed life that people, evident, or people see, then you know that you're a child of God. If it's not there, if people don't see that, if you don't see it yourself, well, there's hope. You can turn to Christ, and when you turn to Christ, He will in no way cast out those who draw near to Him because our God is a gracious, loving God. He is a forgiving God, and He will forgive us of all our sins. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this time.